Today, we need to be driven by health, by the health of food, because food to me is by far the most important uh, determinant of, of human health, by far. There, there's absolutely nothing else in our environment and in our lifestyle that is more important than food. You're listening to Parallax from Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. Here is your host, Ankur Kalra, MD. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Parallax. Um, this is a unique episode. You know, we typically get cardiologists um, to uh, come on our show and, and talk to us. Um, and, um, you know, this show is different because, you know, we have uh, someone who's um, who's accomplished and who wants to push the envelope and is is working for um, a futuristic company, uh, you know, for lack of a better word. It's more than just a company. I think it's a vision um, and is not a cardiologist, but but is a Ph.D. scientist. Um, and um, I apologize, Momo, if I if I butcher your your surname, but uh, our guest on today's show is Momo. Uh, he is the, the chief science officer and head of clinical research at Viome Life Sciences. And uh, the reason I brought Momo on, on board is we've had email conversations and, you know, online conversations for, I think, close to about three years now. And we've been wanting to work together. And, and that still is the verve that I share. Um, but, you know, each time I, I speak with Momo, you know, he introduces me to uh, new concepts around the gut microbiome and its association with cardiovascular health and its association with cardiovascular disease outcomes. And I know there's a lot of interesting work that Wyoming Life Sciences has undertaken, um, you know, in internationally in, in countries, including in India. Uh, but I'll have, um, the man himself talk all about this. Uh, so which without much further ado, Momo, welcome on the show and thank you so much for doing this for us. Um, hello. Super glad to be here. Let's talk some science. All right, we'll we'll dive right in. So, Momo, um, before we begin, uh, tell me a little bit more about uh, you know your um, research background and your scientific background, and what uh, prompted you to work with Naveen Jain at Wyom Life Sciences. Well, first of all, um, I had a um, an early onset autoimmune disease in my twenties, and for about ten years that kept getting my body um, uh, worse and worse. And so I was headed for a wheelchair and no one could figure out what was actually the root cause of my disease. All the medical doctors could only basically shut down my immune system. And that's the current state of the art. We don't actually understand what causes autoimmune diseases. We, we just know how to uh, slow down the immune system. And that was not an acceptable uh, form of therapy for me for a long term. And so I, I spent many years seeking the root cause, and uh, we didn't have the tools and technologies that we have today, but I read a lot of literature, and I did a lot of trial and error. I tried many different diets. I basically knew that it was diet-related because most of the chronic diseases and cancers are caused by our diet and lifestyle. They're not really genetic diseases. Even cancers that people still think are genetic diseases, they're not. They're diet and lifestyle uh, diseases. And so... I tried different diets, you know, the ones that are just uh, sort of off the shelf promoted on the internet. None of them really worked. Not that I did a, a perfect job of those, but 
this one particular paper caught my attention where they studied the mechanism of chronic systemic inflammation caused by a molecule that is found in mammalian food products. And they showed very elegantly that it was causing symptoms that in mice that I thought were similar to what I was experiencing. And so one fine day, I simply quit consuming all mammalian food products, and that includes all dairy and all red meats, so pork, lamb, beef, and so on. And because I knew the biochemistry of this molecule and because I knew all the details about it mechanistically, I knew that I had to stick with this diet super strictly for at least a month before I would even notice any 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 improvement. And surely enough, after a month, I started noticing an improvement. After two or three months, it was clear to me that this was it. It took me about a year to heal because my joints were very badly damaged. And... Um, and so that was sort of the big, the, 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 the experience of going through that made me change my scientific career. And I wanted to basically spend the rest of my career studying the human body like it's not been studied before and understand the root causes of chronic diseases so that we can prevent them and not wait for them to actually become symptomatic and then manage them. And so my, my basically journey in my current function started in about 2010, I completely changed my scientific career and focused on developing the technologies needed to study the human body like it's not been studied before. And for six years, I worked at Los Alamos National Laboratory to develop these technologies. And then Naveen and I, uh, in 2016, started the company. You know, initially, I, I had the concept that I had, the, I had the vision, but I didn't know whether this was going to be best done as a for-profit company or a nonprofit institute or a foundation or something like that. And, and I decided that, that a for-profit company was going to be best because not only can we make discoveries, but along the way, we can help people. And that's exactly what's happening today. Um, uh, so excellent. You know, I, I'm going to, uh, dive, um, a lot more into uh, the helping the people aspect, um, but before we we get there, um, tell us about um, what you've discovered and found out um, when it comes to the association of gut microbiome and its relation to cardiovascular health and cardiovascular disease. So both health and disease. Uh, you know that's the question for you. Yeah. Well, you're getting right to the point, huh? <laughs> Okay, so um, I'm going to discuss three topics of how nutrition and its interaction with the gut microbiome is related to um, to cardiovascular health. But before that, I'd really like to introduce the concept of gut microbiome and gut microbiome functions, because there's just so much information about the gut microbiome and the vast majority, like 99.9% .9 of all information about the gut microbiome has to do with its composition and not functions. And that's really the biggest distinguishing feature between Viome Life Sciences and all other services, companies, research projects, and so on, is that everyone else has focused on the composition of the gut microbiome because we are used to basically the pathogen model where one pathogen causes a disease and people in the gut microbiome space and oral microbiome and other microbiome spaces, they basically assumed that that's the relationship that's going to be uh, established, but that's actually not the case. In other words, 
one microbe in someone's gut is not going to cause a disease. The relationship is far more complex. So I would like to educate your audience about how to think of the microbiome in the, in the right context. So the right context is that think of making beer. And that's a microcosm of the gut microbiome. You have an influx of specific molecules that you're providing to a microbe in order to make something chemically. And so in, in, in particular case, in the particular case of beer, you're providing a polysaccharide from barley to a specific strain of yeast, brewer's yeast. And when you combine the two, the brewer's yeast makes alcohol. And that's, that's what you want it to do. So think of that one microbe as a chemical factory that can take in a particular type of a nutritional ingredient and convert it to something, uh, desirable. So. If we scale that to a thousand times, because a typical person's gut microbiome will have about a thousand different kinds of microorganisms in their, in their stool, in their intestines. Think of the potential for that chemical factory. Uh, there's about 15,000 molecules that we consume via nutrition. So our foods, you know, broccoli is not like a green mass. Broccoli is basically a container that contains about a hundred different kinds of bioactive molecules. And so is every other vegetable and meat and, and, and grain, right? And so this flood of about 15,000 different kinds of molecules enters our digestive tract and encounters a microbial community of a thousand different kinds of microbes. And they are processing that food alongside us. And as, as, a, as, as, a, as an, as a basically a byproduct of them consuming that food, they are producing thousands of new chemicals. And, and these are in the scientific literature called metabolites or microbial metabolites or secondary metabolites, or, but they're basically just byproducts of microbial metabolism. And it turns out that this is really the core of understanding the microbiome. We as humans have evolved to depend on those metabolites that are produced by the gut microbiome in order to live a healthy life. We only have 20,000 genes. The microbes have more than a million genes. And so we actually have evolved to depend on those chemicals to maintain health without having to encode all the genes for production of those chemicals. Are we good so far? Is this, is this too long of a story? No, we're great so far. I'm, I'm just focusing on uh, the gut microbiome and all the compounds that we digest in the macronutrients or the food that we eat and how those macronutrients in the food that we eat are broken down into different biochemicals, uh, you know, which the gut microbiome synthesize. Am I with you so far? Yeah, exactly. And so we'll, we'll get to some specific chemicals as related to cardiovascular health. Um, but let me just transition a little bit further here. So, <clears throat> so people obviously can read a lot about this. So I would encourage people to read about the importance of gut microbiome in different diseases as mediated by their metabolic output, meaning the metabolites they're making. And so this has to do with, for example, the development of the immune system and the, the further not, not just the initial development as, uh, during infancy, but also during your lifetime, conversion of T cells into memory T cells is actually stimulated by 
a metabolite produced by the gut microbiome. You cannot consume that metabolite. So it's a chemical signal to our immune system, hey, you should convert to a memory T cell and have a lasting immunity. Uh, that's just one of many, many examples that I find really cool. So um, let's now dive right into the cardiovascular health. And I have three themes to discuss uh, that I know of, but I'm sure there are others out there in the literature. If you dig deeply, we personally, uh, you know, not personally, but we at Viome Life Sciences have not focused heavily on cardiovascular health in terms of clinical research. But of course, we have integrated all of the existing research. And so um, let's talk about the first topic, and that is inflammation. So I think that it's a pretty well-known fact that chronic systemic inflammation can lead to cardiovascular health. And chronic systemic inflammation is this sort of a mythical term, but what it means is that your immune system is active all the time instead of being active only in response to a pathogen. And why is so common why is it so common these days that our immune systems are activated? Well, that's mostly due to the diet and gut microbiome. So let's talk about very specific uh, mechanisms of that chronic systemic inflammation. And people can, of course, read. I'm going to give sort of keywords and people and explanations, but people can go and dive much more deeply if they'd like, because each one of these topics can take many days to discuss. But in summary, there are molecules. Please remember that our immune system doesn't have eyes, doesn't have a brain that cannot talk to us. It cannot ask me, hey, should I be inflamed right now or not? The only thing that the immune system has is it can listen for chemicals. It can detect chemicals that are present. That's it. And a chemical can be something like an external protein found on a pathogen, and our immune system will react to that and try to kill it and remove it. It can be a metabolite produced by the gut microbiome called lipopolysaccharide, and we're going to shorten it to LPS. And it can be a metabolite produced by the gut microbiome called butyrate. And so I'm just going to simplify to the simplest possible uh, case here. But every one of us has microorganisms in their gut microbiome that can produce LPS and that can produce butyrate. And it's really the balance of these two that determines the activation of the immune system. That's a sort of a gross oversimplification because as soon as you delve into LPS, it becomes very complicated, but we're not going to delve into that level of scientific detail. But just at the, at the, at the surface level, think of LPS as a pro-inflammatory chemical, meaning when, when the gut microbes in your, in your intestines produce it, and especially if you have a leaky gut and LPS translocates into the bloodstream, it'll activate our immune system and it'll continuously do that, causing inflammation. On the other hand, when butyrate is produced, it'll translocate over into the bloodstream, whether you have a leaky gut or not, and it'll tell the immune system, hey, everything's cool. No need to be active. Calm down. And so we now have basically a pendulum of a pro-inflammatory chemical produced by the gut microbiome called LPS and an anti-inflammatory chemical produced by the gut microbiome called butyrate. And these two chemicals, just like in my initial example of, of yeast producing alcohol, they are produced in response to foods. And so let's dive into that. So I want to give one very specific example that is, in my mind, very, very important um, because it relates to people 
people going to the grocery store and, and buying the right stuff and consuming the right foods. So we all talk about processed foods and, and high sugar foods. So let's talk about that. These microorganisms that, that produce LPS, they generally fall into a group of bacteria called gamma proteobacteria. And again, your audience can read much more about them, but these proteobacteria can produce LPS and they do it in general in response to sugar. And sugar is like monosaccharides or disaccharides, meaning like glucose or sucrose or galactose, things like that. And how does sugar get into the colon where these bacteria reside? One of two ways, either by consuming so much sugar, like sugary drinks, that your body cannot absorb it, so it ends up in the colon, or you consume so much processed foods like highly processed wheat. And so this is the white wheat, which is so common these days. It's very difficult to find whole wheat. You have to really, really look hard for whole wheat. In fact, we actually make whole wheat flour at home because it's so difficult to find it. We simply grind our own wheat groats. So if you consume a lot of these highly processed grains, your body is not going to be able to absorb them and they're finely ground and they're stripped of all the fiber. So basically when they enter the colon, these proteobacteria are going to consume them, produce LPS and inflame your body. Are you following so far? Is this pretty clear? This is very clear. I'm following awesome. the LPS, the butyrate story, and I'm now following what you just told me about white wheat and whole wheat. Great. Now, if you take that same meal, but you replace the highly processed white wheat with whole grain wheat that's coarsely ground, what happens now is that that wheat is going to enter your, um, your small intestine. Your body is going to chop off all the, all the parts that, are, that it needs. And then the remaining about 10 to 20% of that wheat, which is indigestible fiber, will now enter the colon, and now those proteobacteria cannot digest that food. They are not going to feed on it, so they're not going to produce LPS. But who is going to feed is all of these other bacteria that consume these, this indigestible fiber and produce butyrate. And so now, and they tell the immune system, hey, calm down, everything's cool, no, no worries. So here we have a very simple choice that someone would make at the grocery store where they're, let's say, buying hamburger buns and or tortillas or any kind of a wheat product. And they're going to make, some people are going to make the normal American choice, which is they're going to get the highly processed white wheat stripped of all the good stuff, just polysaccharide, basically starches. And they're going to overconsume it by eating multiple hamburgers. They're going to feed now the, the proteobacteria in their gut microbiome, they're going to invigorate their or activate their immune system, and they're going to have chronic inflammation. And this is going to be far more exacerbated by having a leaky gut, which is a completely separate topic to discuss. Whereas someone else will consume whole wheat, coarsely, coarsely ground product like pita bread or some kind of a flat bread. Um, and, and, and they will consume a smaller amount and they will basically feed themselves the carbs that they need, but they will also feed their gut microbiome who will inform chemically their immune system. Hey, calm down. There's nothing to do here. And, and so that, that's how profoundly the food affects our health. And, and, and this obviously goes on every single day. You know, you don't get a heart attack after eating one meal. Heart attacks follow decades of poor food choices, right? And so 
you make good choices every day and you never have a heart attack. You follow bad food choices every day and eventually you get a heart attack, which is why cardiovascular disease is the number one killer in modern societies. Yes, Momeno, thank you for um, dissecting this and going um, over uh, the mechanism, uh, you know, simplistically going over the mechanism for our audience, most of whom are cardiologists. Um, uh, it's it's interesting you you the the way you uh, broke down um, the pathogenesis of modern day number one killer, which is cardiovascular disease, to to nutrition, and um, you know. It, in part, the vast majority of it may may still be true. Um, you know, it 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 befuddles as to how we got here. Uh, you know, in, in all these decades, um, and why were so many things done wrong? Uh, you know, in the nutrition industry, that we are here, and not only have we made it the number one killer in in this country, in the U.S., um, you know, it is the number one killer in the globe, um, because uh, I think the the way the foods are um, manufactured and processed and and delivered to to markets globally, uh, I think they've just had a lot of influence of of the Western societies and and the Western hemisphere. Um, what do you what do you have to say to um, to that? I mean, does it does does this require a complete reengineering of how food is produced? processed, manufactured, and delivered? Well, um, I think what we need to do is first start with education. All of this food is available, by the way. My wife and I cook our food at home and we make good food choices. This is just one of many things that we do. But all of this is available today. You just have to be educated and know how to make the right food choices. And so the food industry obviously has not known and has not been concerned about any of this their focus as food scientists and you know and marketers uh marketeer marketeers has been how do we enhance the flavor and and desirability of food and obviously a fluffy white bun is much more desirable to humans than a you know all shriveled up whole wheat bun and therefore that's that's what it is right so so we've been we've been basically driven by desirability of food and today we need to be driven by health by the health of food because health, food to me is by far the most important uh determinant of of human health by far there there's absolutely nothing else in our environment and in our lifestyle that is more important than food and so all the information is there we just need to educate and so whole food plant based diet with a little bit of meat for some people, especially fish, and and uh, and when I say whole food, I mean whole food. Like eat whole oats, buy groats of wheat, and grind them yourself. You know, grinding flowers used to be some kind of a complicated process decades ago. Today, you go buy a Vitamix, you know, blender that has an attachment for uh, for a mill, and you can grind anything you want. We make lentil flowers. We make rice flowers, we make wheat flowers, oat flowers, almost every day of our lives. And it's so easy to do. You just make it fresh right before the meal because it takes literally two minutes. So all this is available. We just need to educate people to make the right food choices. Do you agree? I agree. And it's fascinating that you would grind your own whole wheat and, and lentils to make flour before you before you make bread. 
absolutely. I mean, so if you if you want to make a dosa, for example, you know, you typically you would go buy the super refined rice flour and add a little bit of chickpea chickpea flour, right? But what we actually the way we make dosa is that I will add to my blender about a third rice, a third lentils, and a third wheat. I will grind those up, right? And then I will make dosa uttapam. Uttapam is my favorite, you know, type of a flat bread, um, which is a type of South Indian uh, dish that I'm sure you're familiar with. I'm not sure about the audience, but, and and so I'll make fresh uttapams uh, with freshly ground flour and I can change the ratios. And by introducing lentils and wheat, I'm now introducing very good fibers, very good polyphenols, um, and, and I still get a great texture. And so I get really nutritious meal that is not highly processed like the, the, the you know, uh, commercial flours. And it's very tasty and it's very healthy. So you can easily make these food choices. And, and like I said, it literally takes one minute to grind a batch of flour needed to make a, a batch of dosas or utapams. Yeah, is, you know, the... The, the counter argument or the question that many people, I'm sure many people have asked you this already is the applicability and the, um, and the consistent, um, reproducibility of your ability to generate this nutritious food on a daily basis in, in busy families and with busy lifestyles. And I, I, I know, you're, I know you're a busy physician scientist and you're leading clinical investigation at Viome Life Sciences. How, how, what do you have to, how do you have to answer uh, that question for, for the audience? Yeah, I mean, that's a very good question. And, and to me, to me, it's a very simple answer. If people go to sleep on time and get eight hours of sleep, that's really how you set yourself up for the next day. Meaning when you come home from work, you're not going to be exhausted. You know, people say, I just came from work and I'm exhausted. You're not exhausted from work. You're exhausted because you didn't get enough sleep the night before. That's a chronic problem in the United States that people simply do not address because no one wants to address it. No one wants to be told that they need to sleep eight hours a day, right? So my day starts the previous night by going to sleep on time, getting eight hours. And now, yes, we have a very hard day of work. But when I come home, I'm very energized and I'm ready to cook with my wife. So that's one thing. The second thing is, Doing food preps on weekends is a huge savior and so time savings. And so we'll go to different stores and farmers markets. I won't buy a pound of carrots. I'll buy eight pounds of carrots or 10 pounds of carrots. I'll go buy 10 pounds of onions. And on the weekend, I will chop it all up and put it in bags or containers and put it in the freezer. So when we're making dinner, everything is basically ready to go. It, It takes very little chopping of some things that need to be fresh. But we make, we basically cook whole food, plant-based diet at home. And most of the things are already pre-chopped. Most like chickpeas, we will, chickpeas, beans, we will cook large batches in our slow cooker and just freeze them. And then in the morning of the day that we want to cook something, one of those for dinner, we'll just take it out of the freezer. And dinner is basically putting things together. It's very simple. And, and whole food, plant-based diet, there are no weird, like, long, like three hour simmers. Um, there's nothing complicated. It's very simple. So people can create a very simple way. We've done this. It's very enjoyable. It's a very, it's a, it's a great social aspect of, of family life to cook together. And my son is 19 and he's able to cook. When my wife and I go on vacation for two weeks, he cooks every day. He doesn't go out at all. He cooks every day. 
He knows how to cook all the, uh, all kinds of different foods and he's vegan. He's even more strict vegan than we are. And he does just fine. And he's only 19. There's, there's really, it's really simple. All that people have to do is realize how important it is. This is right. I think that's, that's why I said, going back to education, if you educate people, how important this is and give them specific data and examples, then people will tend to actually invest time. But if people are like, well, I don't know what's good for me. You know, there's conflicting information on everything. If you can find today conflicting information about any kind of food and any kind of diet. And when that's out there, people are just not going to trust any of it. And they're going to say, well, it doesn't matter what I eat because one day it's good for you. One day it's bad for you. So I'm just going to eat what I like and what's easy. Does that make sense? You know, that makes the greatest sense. And that is how nutrition research and uh, is is processed, you know, even by clinicians, because, you know, like you said, (laughs) um, day one, it's good for you and day 10, it's bad for you. And so, you know, the the mantra of, you know, moderation is the best sauce and we're just going to eat um, in moderation and and enjoy life is is what people tend to think about. But, you know, I I don't think that's taken as far because, you know, like you said, the burden of non-communicable diseases and chronic diseases is only going up. Um, It is. It is. So, so let me then, let me then explain something that's very important before we dive into the last two examples for cardiovascular disease. So, you know, early on in my journey, when I was trying different diets, I realized that nutritional sciences are actually not sciences. Okay. To me, I consider a science to be something objective. For example, math is the most objective science. If you go to three mathematicians and ask them, how much is two plus two? You're going to get three identical answers. It's always four. And that's because it's an objective science. Okay. If you have chemistry, that's an objective science. If you mix a specific acid and a specific base and ask three chemists, what are you going to get as the product? They will all give you the exact same answer because chemistry is a very objective science. If you mix two chemicals, they will react predictably every single time. Now, when you go to nutritional scientists, you, you record your symptoms on a, on a tape, right? And you provide it to three different nutritionists. You're going to get three different recommendations, even today. And what that, te- and, and this was my journey, you know, 15, 20 years ago with nutritional scientists that the same input provides you very different outputs. And the reason for that is because their recommendations are more heavily influenced, in fact, almost exclusively influenced by their experiences, their anecdotal experiences, their belief system, um, instead of science. And so back in 2010, when I envisioned Viome, from scratch, I envisioned it to be 100% objective science, which I call Nutrition 2.0. So what we've developed at Viome is called Nutrition, I call that Nutrition 2.0. And it is 100% objective, meaning that it only incorporates chemistry and math. There is no human being involved in our science whatsoever. I mean, none. It's, we take stool, blood, and saliva samples from our customers We measure the chemistry using something called RNA sequencing. It's a very quantitative, objective, scientific method that is clinically validated. And you produce chemical data on the functions of the microbiome and human genes as well. And on top of that chemistry, which you just measured, you overlay mathematical equations. And so from samples, you measure chemistry, you overlay mathematical equations, and you get a uh, you compute a diet. So what that means is that we currently have 300,000 customers 
And our computers have computed 300,000 diets. No two customers have the same diet. And that's because everything is 100% objective. There is no ketogenic diet. There is no Mediterranean diet. There is nothing. Does that make sense? That makes sense. And, uh, you know, Momo, I, the, the follow-up question to this is then, I mean, 300,000 is, is a big sample size. Um, and um, I don't know if you've had an opportunity to longitudinally follow your customers. Um, I mean, obviously, you need to know their baseline health status, you know, in terms of whether or not they have established cardiovascular disease or cardiovascular disease risk factors, and whether an intervention like your mathematically induced diet supplements has had any impact on them. Now, you know, these are supplements, right? These are not, you're not supplanting their whole diet with, with, you know, everything that my own life sciences manufactured. These are supplements in addition to what they consume. Yeah. So let me, let me explain about the Viome Sciences, uh, Viome Life Sciences and this Nutrition 2.0. So Nutrition 2.0, the output is actually what nutritional ingredients does a person need to consume and what nutritional ingredients does a person need to avoid in four different categories. That's what the output is. That raw output has nothing to do with foods or supplements. It has to do with chemicals, right? The nutritional ingredients. Now, the next layer is that the computers will say, Okay, this person needs um, sulforaphane, um, but um, if they eat broccoli, which contains sulforaphane, then uh, they're going to get also um, some chemicals that their microbiome is going to is going to convert into harmful chemicals for themselves. So we cannot recommend recommend broccoli, and therefore we're going to recommend that they take sulforaphane as a supplement. So the computer makes these choices as to which of those molecular ingredients the person should be consuming in their diet and which ones it sh they should be consuming as supplements. And supplements are only used to supplement the diet. The, the absolute bulk of the benefit that a consumer would derive from our recommendations comes from the diet, not the supplements. The supplements will contain 20 to 50 chemicals out of 15,000 chemicals that you're supposed to be consuming via foods, right? So it's a very small fraction, but it is helpful for certain things that are concentrated. Um, for example, if you need something such that you need to consume a pound of blueberries every day, people are not going to consume a pound of blueberries every day for various reasons. And so we can provide a supplement for that potentially. And so um, it, it is both foods and, foods and supplements. Both are very important. Does that answer your question? Yes, it does. Um, it, it, it does. To a, it does to a certain extent, you know, although I still have questions, but, you know, for, uh, and, you know, maybe we will get you back for another episode for, uh, you know, for us to be cognizant of, of the time. Uh, we have only a few minutes left. Yeah, let me just answer your question about do we follow? Yes, we have 16,000 clinical research participants in our clinical research programs, and we have 300,000 customers, and we do follow many of them longitudinally. We are, we are, we are now just publishing some preliminary papers um, that are showing efficacy of our nutrition for IBS, depression, anxiety, and type 2 diabetes. We, in fact, have two papers um, that we're getting ready for submission to for peer review. One of them is a preprint already. The other one will become a preprint next week. So I will be able to share those with you if you'd like. Uh, but we are currently running four randomized control trials where, and that, that's for the same four conditions. So it's type 2 diabetes, 
depression, anxiety, IBS, and then also we have obesity, but obesity is really not obesity. It's, it's insulin resistance because we're measuring fasting insulin as the primary endpoint. So those are the four randomized control trials that we're currently running, we're, we're currently enrolling. And the only intervention in those trials is nutrition. So 100% of everything that you can, that you, that the intervention consists, consists of, you can get it at the grocery store. And so hopefully by the end of this year, we will have the results of those trials, um, maybe even sooner for one of them. So we will be reporting on that. And maybe, uh, if, if those work, then maybe we can reconnect and we can discuss the results of those. Oh, yes, absolutely. I think it'll be fascinating to, to see what those trials showed. Um, uh, you know, particularly, particularly with diabetes. I mean, not that. Uh, not that depression, anxiety, and IBS are are not important disease conditions. They obviously are, but you know, I think for the interest and the focus of our audience, I think it'll be really interesting to see what the what the diabetes trial showed. Um, but you know, moving on to the other two um, concepts that you wanted to discuss uh, for the show, I, I think it'll be it'll be fascinating for our audience. Yeah. Okay. So so we discussed the concept of. Uh, inflammation, chronic systemic inflammation that is either um, um, activated by LPS or that it's calmed down by butyrate. Next, next molecule that I want to discuss is another molecule that is a metabolite. So everything we're discussing today goes back to my original uh, discussion that it's the it's the biochemical functions of the microbiome, not the comp- not the composition of the microbiome that are important. And so the next molecule is called TMA, trimethylamine. And so when we consume things like lecithin and red meats, and red meats are the most, the most, uh, you know, the biggest culprit, in some people, their microbiome will convert choline from red meat into a molecule called trimethylamine. And then that molecule will cross into the blood and our liver will oxidize it into trimethylamine oxide. So TMAO and, and your audience, your cardiologists should definitely read more about it. We do not have time uh, to touch upon all the details, but basically this molecule for about 15 plus years has been very strongly associated with cardiovascular disease. And, and this is now a very well studied field and, and, and your audience should read about it, but basically um, there, there, in my opinion, this should now become a routine practice where we measure TMAO in blood, just like we measure triglycerides, just like we measure cholesterol, we should measure TMAO in blood. And for people who have a high TMAO, they should then minimize or stop eating red meats. And so, um, that's one molecule that is made by gut microbiome. So you cannot consume it. You, it's actually a metabolite of the gut microbiome. And the last one is potentially even more powerful than TMA. And it's a sort of a newer molecule, but the epidemiological data are extremely strong. And now the mechanistic data are, are strong in the literature. So people should really read about this molecule. The molecule name is a little complicated, but it has an abbreviation. So the molecule is called phenylacetylglutamine. So phenylacetylglutamine or PAG. And so if you just Google PAG and cardiovascular disease, you will get two or three papers that are absolutely mind-blowing in terms of the strength of the association between that molecule and cardiovascular health. Now, I'm going to simplify things in terms of everyday life. PAG is produced by microbiome members in the colon in response to protein reaching the colon. 
So if you consume a certain level of protein, that will be consumed in the upper intestinal, in the small intestine, sorry, in the small intestine, it'll be degraded and it'll be absorbed. And so very, very minimal amounts of protein will reach the colon. However, if you overconsume protein such that your body is unable to digest it all and it goes into the colon, now the microbes will get it and they will feed on it and they will produce this PAG as a metabolite. Going back to my original example, yeast processing barley into alcohol, this is the same thing. Microbes will take protein and they will make a metabolite called phenylacetylglutamine or PAG. And that PAG will enter the bloodstream and I firmly believe cause cardiovascular disease. The causation, I think, is, is likely due to such strong epidemiological data. And so to me, over the period of human evolution, we had access to very little protein. We didn't, you know, we couldn't hunt for hundreds of thousands of years. We didn't have livestock. And so getting access to protein was very challenging. Whereas today, getting access to protein is very easy. And I think we're overdoing it by a large margin. You know, people say you need to eat a lot of protein. Everyone is doing that. But that's, to me, one of the potential largest causes of of cardiovascular disease. Um, when you eat red meats, you're getting a double whammy. You're basically getting the uh, TMA and you're getting PAG. And when you eat red meats with highly processed sugar, uh, sorry, highly processed grains plus sugar, then it's a triple whammy. You basically get the detriment of all foods directly impacting your cardiovascular health. So let's summarize. You go to a fast food place and eat a burger with fries and with a Coke. Now, the bun of the fries and the starch, sorry, the bun of the burger, the starches from the fries are going to be feeding those proteobacteria in your gut, and they're going to be producing pro-inflammatory signals. You're not providing any fiber, so your bacteria that are producing butyrate are not going to produce butyrate because you didn't feed them. And so they're not going to produce anti-inflammatory signals, so you just have pro-inflammatory signals. Your red meat is going to provide this choline, um, which is going to produce TMA by the microbes. And then you're going to consume a lot of protein and that's going to be converted into PAG and that's going to potentially cause cardiovascular disease. So it's like a triple whammy just by having your burger combo meal at a fast food place. And you keep doing that on a regular basis for decades and boom, heart attack. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that's fascinating. I, I, I'll be honest with you. I've known about TMAO. I did not know about PAG, but I'll, I certainly I'm going to look that up. Um, Moma, this has been a fascinating conversation. I've learned so much and I think we've only scratched the surface. Um, do you think it'll be worthwhile to get you back for another episode uh, to sort of dive more into the two compounds that you just talked about, you know, TMAO and, and PAG? You know, to be honest, that gets into hardcore chemistry and microbial physiology. And, and honestly, that's not useful to either cardiologists or patients. Uh, to me, uh, we should focus on how do we translate this chemical knowledge and all this scientific mumbo jumbo into actionable insights? How, how do we convey this information to a Joe Schmo off the street? That's really what I think, uh, we should be focused on translating that. And so I'd be happy, you know, that's why I sort of gave these examples that involve the grocery store and involve the foods. And I think that's really educating the people about the importance of foods and food choices that they make. And 
And, and, and so I would really like to stay at a high level and discuss when you go to the grocery store, when you plan your meals, how do you actually do that? What kind of behavioral changes do you need to make? What kind of choices do you need to make? And how do you maintain that in order to succeed in the long run? Yeah, no, uh, Momo, thanks again for your time and for your flexibility. And, you know, it's taken so long to, to get this episode recorded, but it's been a fascinating discussion, you know, totally worth the wait for me. So thanks. Thanks for your patience to, to work with us. And, um, any closing remarks and, and, you know, future, um, insights into what Wyoming Life Sciences is up to? Um, well, we are moving forward with Nutrition 2.0 every day. You know, we're doing lots of clinical research and, and getting lots of data from our customers. And we're converting all of that using machine learning into new mathematical equations so that we can, we can improve Nutrition 2.0 on a continuous basis. Um, and we're also getting into some, uh, some uh, diagnostic tests. I would just say that we need a lot more help. You know, we need a lot more researchers and companies to actually translate the research, not publish papers, but translate the research into actionable insights that people can actually use, that doctors can point to and say, hey, you should do this. And patients can read and say, wow, this is, this makes sense to me versus all this, uh, you know, scientific mumbo jumbo. So I'm happy to, that I'm on this podcast and I'm happy to come back and, and help interpret some of this sort of hardcore science into actionable insights and, and help people live better lives because there's just so much to nutrition and so much complexity in terms of food science and making the right choices. And how do you even prepare foods? I mean, all of that I think is very helpful to people. Yeah, no, uh, Momo, this is again, you know, it's been a fascinating conversation and, you know, thank you for, uh, being here at Parallax and, you know, from me as well as from the team at Radcliffe, um, you know, good luck and keep educating us and we'll, we'll get you back for another episode. That's what I do. Thank you so much for this opportunity and have a wonderful day. We hope you enjoyed today's podcast produced by Radcliffe Cardiology in association with makeadent.org. We aim to bring you a new angle of all things cardiology every second week. Review us on your favorite podcast app or send your comments or questions to podcast at ratcliffe-group.com. To view the series, head to radcliffecardiology.com forward slash podcasts forward slash parallax. Thanks for listening.